Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Hello and welcome to Offscript. My name is Stephen Edgington. After winning a significant majority in the 2019 election, the Conservatives look to be heading to a historic defeat at the next general election in 2024. To discuss the realignment in British politics and how the Conservatives may have thrown it away, I'm joined by the academic Matthew Goodwin. Let's start off by talking about immigration. This is a major issue currently yep. in British politics. How significant is this issue for the next election? Well, I think immigration is going to be a top three issue for the next election. We can already see it's a number two issue for those 2019 Conservative voters. And I've been running focus groups in the Red Wall in recent weeks. And I can tell you it's concerning a lot of voters, both legal immigration, the fact we're now at a record high, about 504,000 is our level of net migration, never been higher in recent years, but also we've got illegal migration and the small boats crisis, which is really generating a considerable amount of panic and alarm across the country. And my personal view is that the the conversation that we're having in, in London, in parts of the media, in what you might call the elite class, doesn't really reflect the mood out there in the country. I'm polling voters every week. Large majorities say Britain does not have control of its borders. They want a tougher approach. They are more than happy with Rishi Sunak's proposals. If anything, they'd like them to go a bit further. They certainly don't endorse the view expressed by Gary Lineker and others in recent weeks. So I think this issue is going to remain at the very forefront of British politics as we go through the next election. So as you said, that we've got record illegal and legal migration, all despite the Brexit vote in 2016 and subsequent votes for controls on our border at on our borders at several elections. Do you think there's a sense of betrayal among Leave voters? I think there's certainly a sense of confusion among Leave voters. I've just finished writing this book and I know we'll come on to talk about it, but one of the questions I ask there is why is it that the Conservative Party have become disconnected from that unique coalition that Boris Johnson put together in 2019? And many people will say that was about Brexit and Jeremy Corbyn and we've moved on. I take a different view, actually. I think basically the the British Conservative Party didn't really understand who voted for it in 2019, didn't know how to keep those voters, and didn't really know what to say to those voters. And immigration is an example of that. Consistently, people who voted for the Conservatives in 2019 wanted lower immigration, not just controlled immigration. There's a lot of Conservatives basically gaslighting the country by saying, well, actually, voters didn't want lower immigration, they wanted controlled immigration. Wrong. Even today, more than half the country say we'd like lower 
migration, please. So that's a real point of disconnect. But underneath that, I think, is a fundamental tension between the brand of conservatism that we've got in this country, the nature of conservatism, and what people out there really want. And one of my arguments, certainly in the book, is that basically the Conservative Party, like much of the political establishment, leans much too far to the cultural left and much too far to the economic right to appeal to a large number of voters out there in the country who are saying they'd quite like something different. OK, let's talk about that last statement. So I've got a quote here from Dominic Cummings on Twitter, and he mentions your name. <laughs> so he says, To go left on economy and right on culture meme is lazy, ignorant, oversimplification, typical of pundits and crap social scientists, academics. <laughs> he says he includes your name in that. We've never been responsible for w- running a winning election campaign, similar to you always win in the centre ground. How do you respond to Mr Cummings? Yeah, in fairness, Cummings never actually... Cummings was riding a wave that started about 20 years before we even got to the Brexit referendum in the 2019 election. So I, my personal view is his importance in British politics is vastly exaggerated. And one of the things I've shown in many of my books over the years and in the new book really underlines that. The divides that made possible the vote for Brexit and before that, the rise of Nigel Farage and then, of course, Boris Johnson's realignment were a long time coming, right? And tapping into those divides really would have been possible with or without people like Dominic Cummings. But the research on this is quite clear. If you look at the people who left the Labour Party for Boris Johnson in 2019, they consistently leaned a bit to the left on the economy, a bit to the right on culture. If you look at the people who voted for Nigel Farage before Boris Johnson, it was much the same. They want the economy balanced. They feel that London is just getting way too much. Everyone else is getting way too little. But they also want the political establishment to lean much further to the right on issues like migration, on crime. In fact, actually, I'm confused because Cummings has also made that same point. So he seems a little bit confused about where voters are. They want a tougher approach on crime. They want fewer small boats. They also generally look at the establishment. They look at the institutions and they say, are these really reflecting my values? And more importantly, are they giving me a voice in the institutions? And I know we'll come back and talk about this, but when I survey voters, which I do regularly, large majorities, especially among the working class and non-graduates, say people like me are not even in this national conversation anymore. They look at the BBC, they look at the institutions in Whitehall and Westminster, they look at the civil service, they look at the NGOs, they look at the universities, they look at the schools and what their kids are being taught. And I think they say, actually, my values aren't even in this conversation anymore. Now, Cummings's answer is to say, let's build this amorphous technocracy that will satisfy all of that because we'll make the institutions more efficient. And that's just naive. It's also a political vision that will appeal to about 10% of the country. And I think actually what is out there is, is much more interesting, which is this very large cross-class coalition of voters who don't just want to rewire the system, they want to fundamentally overhaul and rebuild the system so that it better reflects their values and their voice. And I think that's the story right now in British politics as we go through the 2020s. Neither left nor right are adequately reflecting the values that a large chunk of the country hold. So on this issue of, let's say, immigration being record numbers, have you seen that filter through into people's decisions as to who they vote for? So are the Conservatives losing votes from leave, vote, from leave voters, as it were, because of this issue? And are other parties on the right, let's say the Reform Party or whoever, gaining because of this? Yeah, so if you look at what's happened since the 2019 election, essentially two punches knocked out 
the Conservative Party. And whatever your views about them, this is what happened in the polls. The first was Partygate, cost the Conservatives about six points in the polls. The second was Liz Truss, cost the Conservatives about 11, 12 points in the polls. So it was a two-punch combination. And through all of that, the percentage of Brexit voters backing the Conservatives collapsed from 76% all the way down to 42 Basically, levers just ran for the hills. Now, part of that was about the cost of living. It was about being irritated with what happened during COVID. But it's also, I think, reflecting a realisation among many voters out there, especially blue-collar voters, voters who haven't passed through the universities, voters who took a punt on Johnson, that actually this Conservative Party isn't the Conservative Party they thought they were electing in 2019. And I think there's always been this tension between the liberal lever vision of conservatism that is basically about a deregulation, liberalising finance, shrinking the state, is utterly obsessed with Southern England. And there is a different version of conservatism that is more culturally conservative that is saying, hang on, this isn't just about the economy. This isn't just about free trade. This isn't just about deregulation. This is also about lowering migration, slowing the pace of social change, defending, upholding and promoting Britain's distinctive identity, its culture, its institutions and pushing back against ideologies that want to erode, that want to dilute that cultural inheritance. And there are conservative parties around the world that are responding to that and there are conservative parties around the world like here that are responding very poorly to that. And I think that's ultimately why you've seen a lot of levers run for the hills. Now they've not gone to reform, about one in ten of them have gone to reform. They've not gone to labour, about one in ten have gone to labour. Most are now saying, I'm not going to vote for anybody, I'm sitting it out, I'm apathetic, I don't care anymore. I tried to get this country to change through Brexit. I tried to get it to change through Boris Johnson. And now it's not really changing at all. It's just given me more of the same. I thought I was getting a small state, low tax, a low immigration, a slower changing country. And what I've got is a faster changing, high tax, big state, high immigration, pro-globalization country. And I think a lot of voters are just thinking, I've had enough. I can't be bothered anymore. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. And I want to <laughs> sure. go back to the, the 80s and then sort of go through history chronologically yes. to today. In your book, you talk about Margaret Thatcher and Tony Blair basically being the two sides of the same coin. You have the economic reforms of Thatcher, the globalisation, and the sort of socially liberal reforms of Blair. And they have both caused this major realignment in politics. So that's basically your argument, right? Yeah, so in the book Values, Voice and Virtue, I basically say that we've had a revolution in this country. We don't often call it a revolution, but that's what it is. It's a political and cultural revolution that began in 1979 and continues to this day. But for many voters, they felt like it ended maybe on June the 23rd, 2016. That revolution was led by conservatives and Labour politicians. And there were lots of people out there who will say, hang on, you can't compare Thatcher to Blair. And they're very different politicians, very similar in some ways. Conviction politicians, messianic, radicals, completely reshaped their parties. But they are actually different ideologically. You know, what Thatcher introduced was a radical brand of economic liberalism, what I call hyper-globalisation, utterly focused on liberalising finance, deregulating the economy, pushing back the state. When Blair took over, what he brought about was a radical cultural liberalism that was about mass immigration, was about removing voters from accountable, transparent institutions, pushing the pedal down on the European Union, pushing the pedal down on governance, this idea that we can be governed by 
diffuse, unaccountable institutions. And at the end of all of this, this revolution, basically what we're left with is a country that I think was committed to three things that lots of voters out there felt did not reflect their values. A model of hyper-globalization, which really hollowed out communities, especially in Northern England, not just economically, but culturally, damaged families, damaged the social fabric, damaged established ways of life, mass immigration, one of the biggest, most consequential experiments this country has ever had, but which had many negative effects, especially on workers and non-graduates. If you're in London and Oxbridge, it probably worked out well for you. If you're in left-behind communities, much, much less well. Almost entirely without consent of the population. Almost entirely without consent of the population. And then the depoliticization of politics. Politics became indistinguishable on the left and the right. There was no meaningful choice, really, anymore for voters. And especially while we were in the European Union, the blunt reality is the European Union was not a democratic organisation. And I talk about this a lot in the book. There was no meaningful choice, no meaningful influence over high office in the European Union, which is why many voters said, hang on a minute, I'm not comfortable with this. So this revolution really, by the time we got to the 2010s, had just completely alienated a large chunk of the country who was saying, hang on a minute, David Cameron looks the same as Tony Blair, who really looks the same as lots of liberal conservatives. And that set the stage for these three big rebellions that we then had. And you as yourself have watched them unfold. We had the big rebellion with Nigel Farage. We had the bigger rebellion with Brexit. And then we had the Boris Johnson-led rebellion in 2019. But this was a 40, 50-year process, which is why I say just forget about Jeremy Corbyn for a minute. Forget about Dominic Cummings. Forget about what was written on the side of a big red bus. What is happening here today is a reflection of a political revolution that has been coming for 40, 50 years. It's extraordinary. You cite in your book several reasons that Remainers generally try to explain away the Brexit vote, whether it was the Russians or, as you say, that's the side of the bus or an unfair influence on Facebook advertisement through Cambridge Analytica. And as you say, again, in the book, there's this documentary on Netflix called The Great Hack, which yeah. even... It's a political friends of mine have watched <laughs> and they were like, this is brilliant. And I was like, you don't know yeah. anything. Yeah. But they so, really believe this. Yeah, no, I know, this is it. And it has a huge influence yeah, on, yeah. on what people actually yeah. think, which is a real shame. But uh, yeah, going back to Thatcher and, and Blair, though, Thatcher herself, she was a social conservative in her own views. Um, Peter Hitchens and others criticised her for not passing more conservative social legislation and failing on that front. But you could really pin the changes to the Conservative Party perhaps in 2005 when David Cameron was elected leader. Do you see that as a big turning point for the party's sort of political ideology and future? I do. I think there were a generation of Conservatives who essentially decided Blair and Brown before them on the left to go all in on social liberalism. They basically forgot about a large chunk of the country and said, we're going to go in on progressives in the cities. Cameron and Osborne called themselves progressive conservatives. They went all in. And there's a fascinating story I say in the book, John Major, when he gave his brilliant concession speech, by the way, in 1997, he said, I've lost the election, but actually one thing we have done is forced the Labour Party to give up socialism and change itself and embrace conservative economics, right, essentially, to embrace the economic legacy of Thatcherism. If Gordon Brown had given a similar speech in 2010, I think what he could have said is, yes, Labour's lost power, but actually what Labour's done is successfully force the Conservatives to embrace social liberalism. And you can see that today. And if you look back at 12 years of Conservative rule, on all of the key 
questions about culture, identity and belonging, which remember have become a lot more salient since Thatcher. So I'm not dumping on Thatcher, I'm saying she made some mistakes when it came to economics, but culturally it was a very different era. Today these questions have become much more important to voters as they're living through mass migration, as they're living through the imposition of cultural values on their children and their communities, and as they're living through this assault on Western ways of life. And I think if you look at all of those issues now, the Conservatives over the last 12 years have really not promoted any distinctive Conservative view on those issues. They've just gone all in, essentially, with, with the socially liberal if not radically progressive consensus, because we have to remind ourselves that today liberalism itself is under attack. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that in the old days, we would just be talking about liberals. But actually, I think today we're also talking about radical progressives. And we're talking about a distinctive group of people who represent about 15% of Britain, who are not liberal in any meaningful sense of the term. They are illiberal because they are obsessed with reshaping our society around fixed group identities. They have no interest in individual rights. They are very hostile towards what used to hold the nation together, shared identities, shared histories, shared values. And they are very dismissive of scientific research and scientific knowledge that might undermine some of their claims that Britain is an institutionally racist society or that we should spend all of our time talking about Britain's empire. And I think that's why I talk about conservatives in a fairly in a challenging way in this book, because I personally feel that, that Britain's Conservative Party, for many voters, is no longer what its name implies. I think there are lots of voters who now just feel that the Conservatives have gone all in on a political experiment, which at best represents 25%, 30% of the country. And again, that's why we see so many people now leaving politics altogether, which of course in a first-past-the-post is made even worse, because we have no alternatives. There are no challenges. There are no competitors because it's almost impossible for them to break through under first past the post. But taking politicians out of this in a way, don't you think this is all a reflection of the cultural revolution that's gone on in Britain ever since the 1960s and you could even argue before that sort of post-war politics and we've seen huge changes in people's viewpoint, views towards let's say Christianity, marriage, gay rights, all of these more socially liberal ideas that have slowly become more popular in Britain. Aren't we just seeing politicians basically react to that revolution? I think that liberal revolution has gathered speed and scale. And over the last 10 years, it's become a lot more visible to a lot more people. And if you look at, say, what's happened to white university-educated liberals and I've looked at all the data on this, both in the US and the UK. They've gone through what we call the Great Awakening. So they've become even more liberal. They've become hyper-liberal, as a philosopher John Gray would say. They've become utterly convinced that racism is a major problem in society. They've become utterly convinced that we should go further in promoting and protecting minority rights, or we should go further in teaching children about gender identity theory or this sort of misleading claim that all Western societies are institutionally racist and backward. And essentially, they've doubled down on their on their values. So it's not like the 60s and 70s. What we get what we're living through I think is a very distinctive cultural transformation among the elite graduate class and that's why I call this class a new elite in the book because this isn't like the old elite, right? Britain's always had an elite. We've always had a small network of people who have just been more connected and more affluent and more prosperous than other groups in society. But there's a difference today. The old elite 60s, 70s, 80s 
was generally supportive of the cultural consensus in the country, was certainly economically in a very different place from most voters, but culturally shared their values. Looked up to Britain's institutions, looked at the good in our history as, as well as the bad, was deferential to our collective inheritance, was respecting of key institutions and figures, royal family and others. The new middle-class graduate elite, which has become much more visible since the 90s, is very different. It's openly countercultural. It is sceptical, if not cynical, of all of those things I've just listed. It derives status by, if not repudiating, our shared inheritance, which is a big difference from the old elite. It is overwhelmingly defined by its university education at one of the elite institutions, and those institutions themselves have become much more strongly influenced by the ideology of radical progressivism. It's not a conspiracy. There is no long march through the institutions organized by a handful of individuals. What it is what academics would just call education polarization. So university graduates have moved much further to the left on cultural issues, partly as they're influenced within the institutions, and non-graduates have basically either stayed where they were or they've moved a little bit a little bit leftwards, but not as much as a graduate class. So why does that matter if you look at the BBC, if you look at the creative industries, the cultural institutions, the museums, the galleries, the schools, the universities, all those institutions that are disproportionately dominated by elite graduates from better off families, well, they're taking the institutions with them as they go on this journey, this great awakening, which is why you can see in the reaction to Gary Lineker, in the harassment of academics on university campus, in what we're teaching our kids about race, sex and gender, on all those issues, the elite graduate class is basically dominating, projecting their values and a majority, a non-graduate majority, or even a grad graduates who haven't passed through the elite institutions are looking at this and thinking, what the hell's happened to our ruling class? And to what extent do you think that this infiltration, although you say it's not centralised or, or sort of, sort of pre-meditated in any way, to what extent has this socially liberal infiltration impacted the Conservative Party? I think the Conservative Party has been swept up in the same political and cultural revolution, and you can see that at certain points in recent history. The Conservative Party's positioning on Brexit, on migration, on the 2020 protests in the aftermath of George Floyd. The Conservative Party historically has not wanted to wade into what I call in the book the cultural axis of politics. It's basically ceded territory. It's allowed debates about the rights of women, the rights of children, the rights of family, history and identity to be reframed as culture wars. That is the biggest symbol of how badly the Conservatives have handled the last 12 years or so. They have allowed this large chunk of territory, which is the most Conservative part of territory really that the party should be focused on, to be rebranded as somehow illegitimate or unacceptable. You cannot talk about the rights of women or the rights of children or the family without being badged in some way as being unacceptable or a culture warrior. Right, which is a reflection of just how much territory the Conservatives have ceded. And I think partly that's because our Conservatives, unlike the Italian, the French and the American or the Swedish Conservatives and others, I think basically they have been historically much more interested in status and their links with business than representing Conservative values. I think Conservatives in Britain are utterly obsessed with status. I think they look at these cultural disputes and they are sneering, if not in, if dif indifferent, if not sneering, 
towards them. I think they think these things are below them. I think they see them as a distraction. And I think they would much rather talk about trade, free trade, liberalizing finance, deregulating the economy, whatever it is. And so they've been outflanked by a lot of movement, if you look at the last decade, that they didn't see coming. Farage, Brexit, to some extent Boris Johnson, and they remain in a deeply vulnerable place. Sunak has been talking the talk on issues like small boats, but on a whole array of issues, the Conservatives, as far as I can see, remain deeply vulnerable to an incursion from a genuinely conservative movement that you guys are basically, you've gone all in on the liberal consensus. We don't really think you're representing conservative values anymore. And that's because many of the people within the Conservative Party throughout the last 10, 20 years have genuinely believed in this socially liberal consensus. And as you say, the arguments around economics has been their major focus. And I just want to tackle you on that specific issue about neoliberalism and free trade and lower taxes and all of these things. Because I think that there is a very strong argument from some people who supported Liz Truss, people like David Frost, Mm. who say that Britain at the moment is is experiencing the highest rates of taxes we've had in years. We've got a huge level of government spending and government intervention, massive amounts of regulation on the economy. Businesses are fleeing to other countries around the world. We've got very low economic growth. We've got low productivity. These are all major challenges that cause serious consequences for people's lives, whether they're in the North, in the Red Wall, or wherever they are in the UK. We have basically got a struggling, stagnating economy, and we must revolutionise these things by deregulating, by cutting taxes, by supply-side economics, and all of these, I think all of these things, you know, there is, there is a grain of truth or more than that in, in those arguments. I agree with much of that, but what I'm saying is it's not either or. And if you look at how some of those reforms are, were handled or suggested, it was very clear that they were done so in a way that, in my view, were not going to benefit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The whole country in the way they should have done. So if you look at some of the priorities of 
say, the trust government removing a cap on bankers' bonuses as one of the first moves of that government, I don't think was a particularly smart thing to do. If you look at the analysis of how the tax changes would have impacted the country, they'd mainly have impacted the South East, London and the commuter belt more than they would other people. If you look at levelling up, trust didn't actually mention levelling up. There was no real interest in what are we going to do to revitalise the left-behind communities. Now, I accept the point that I, all the points you've made about tax, about the state, and those are all valid arguments, but c historically conservatism has not only been about GDP, has not only been about the economy, and has not only been about business interests. And I think for many people out there there's a sense that today's version of conservatism or brand of conservatism is much more interested in prioritising the interests of business over the interests of the national community. And if you look, for example, at what Truss had promised on migration or was trying to do with the India trade deal, if you look at what Boris Johnson did, one of the interesting comparisons is, if you compare and contrast what voters thought they were getting with Johnson versus what he did, so you see the massive liberalisation of migration policy, even to the point whereby the government removes a requirement on British businesses to advertise jobs in Britain first. Do you think that's what people thought they were getting when they voted for Johnson? So they, and even out there, I can tell you, I run focus groups all the time. Most people still haven't realised just how much the country's been changed over the last five years. I don't think they thought they were going to get this massive liberalisation of migration from outside of Europe. I certainly don't think they thought they were going to be getting net migration of 500,000 and very liberal rules and procedures on international student migration whereby people can bring dependents and others. And we're now seeing things that we didn't even see under new, the irony being they've been introduced under post-Brexit conservative governments. So as I say, the British Conservative Party is now an outlier. If you look at what's happening in, as I say, France, Italy and America, the debate has moved on among conservatives. And in Britain, it stayed in, we're still in 1986, 1987 territory. There's still that view that essentially the conservatives really can ignore all of these issues, not deal with them and just keep talking about reforming the economy and I think people have moved on. I think a lot of people out there are scared, anxious and nervous about what's happening to their country. It's interesting because you mentioned Boris Johnson. Now he is very socially liberal. You can look at his record, look at everything he said over the last 20 years. Okay fine, there's been some off comments, offhand comments and telegraph columns and things yeah. which has positioned himself as the sort of, I don't know, more socially conservative mm -hmm. person. But I think anyone can look at him and say yes, this is a North London elite liberal guy who believes in, open, not open borders necessarily, but believes in... He's in, probably, in, well, probably I mean, not bothered by them. Absolutely. He believes in, in, in mass migration, certainly. He doesn't see a problem necessarily, a problem with that. Massively into environmental issues, so net zero was one of his biggest campaigns as, as prime minister. So, uh, you know, do you think this is part of the reason why the Conservatives have failed in that realignment? I think it's a major reason why the Conservative Party are now flatlining in the low 20s. I don't think Johnson was socially liberal. I think Johnson in many ways was a cosmopolitan. I think if you look at his background, you look at his links, I think also Boris Johnson just wanted to be liked. I think he wanted the chattering classes to like him and I think that influenced his decision making. I don't think he really ever went out with a clear plan for holding and extending the electorate that he won in 2019. And there was ample opportunity to do that. If you look at Britain's political geography today, the way I see it, there is absolutely no chance the Conservatives are going to win London, the university towns, and a large chunk of the South East commuter belt at the next election. Forget it. They are gone. They are full to the brim of university graduates, middle class professionals, and young millennials and Zoomers who, to be blunt, have been trending away from the Conservatives for 10 years, are very hacked off about Brexit, 
are even more hacked off about Partygate and are just not going to vote Conservative at the next election. So the choice facing the party, I think, is clear. Not much of a choice. The only way forward the party has is to reconnect with those areas of the country that voted for it in 2019 and also to work at trying to expand some of those areas. There are about three dozen Labour seats currently with small majorities. We could call them the Red Wall 2.0, where Labour MPs in Yorkshire and the North East and parts of the North West still remain very vulnerable, where there are lots of voters who are just, I sit in rooms with them all the time, just crying out for a competent party that is serious about levelling up, that is serious about toughening up crime, and that is serious about lowering migration and defending the country's borders. And the 2019 manifesto actually was quite a good manifesto for the Conservative Party. The problem is it sort of morphed into this very different brand of conservatism that a lot of voters in those seats don't really want. And if you buy into my analysis that there's no way the Conservatives are going to win anything in Scotland, are going to get more chased out of Wales, are going to get hammered in London and university towns, then that is the only way Rishi Sunak has to minimise his losses and to try and win back some seats to hold power. That's the only possible way forward for the Conservatives. The problem is, is that I think most of the Conservative Party elite do not believe in the things that you're suggesting well, that they say. I talk a lot about that in the book and I, I have a lot of sympathy for that view. Let's talk about the new elites. You do a sort of chapter or mm. part of the book is about this. You've already mentioned mm. a little bit about them. Now in recent days we've got this big row about Gary Lineker basically comparing government rhetoric on the small boats crisis issue mm. to, to Germany in the 1930s. Now again these explanations for the conser- what the Conservative Party is and what populism is are very popular among elite groups. This comparison with the Nazis and Mm. with fascists Mm. and also with Putin, looking at the ties between the Russians, Putin and Brexit as well, Mm. that's become a very popular meme among certain journalists and lawyers and things like this on Twitter. Why do they suddenly believe these crazy conspiracy theories? I call it liberal catastrophizing. I think that's basically what it is. I think it's a cognitive distortion among radical progressives who represent 15% of the country, the sort of follow-back pro-European people on Twitter, that basically seem to be of the view that we have re-entered this grand historical struggle that is tantamount to the 1930s. And I think partly that's a reflection of the fact that many of those people have never lost before, and I think they've spent 10, 10 years or so losing basically beginning with the Brexit referendum from then onwards. And I think they've suffered a series of catastrophic losses. That Election losses. Yeah, that, and also cultural losses in their mind. They identified strongly with Europeanism and cosmopolitanism. And I think they feel that their sense of self has been violated. And also they've reached for narratives that have exaggerated their sense of importance. Gary Lineker is a great example. If you, if as I've done, if you poll the country and say, what do you think about Rishi Sunak's proposals for dealing with the small boats, which is removing people when they arrive, refusing to allow them to return to the country in the future. If you completely disagree with that policy, which I would suggest Gary Lineker does, given what he said, then you are part of the 16%. 16% of the country completely disagree with that policy. A majority agree with it. Now, if you look at our elite debate, our media debate, or sections of the media, I should say, over the last few weeks, 
that would leave you with a view that actually a large majority of the country would share Gary Lineker's view, but actually it's quite different. And I think for that subsection of the country, the radical progressives, they simply see the world in a fundamentally different way. And the evidence, I think, backs me up on this. They are almost unanimous in viewing Britain as a very racist society. They are utterly convinced that we should spend almost all of our time talking about historic injustices, what happened during the days of empire. They are five times as likely as the average voter to share their views on social media. So they just sit there every day, just living on Twitter, pumping out these mad views, which I think social media has amplified and exacerbated. They are very comfortable financially. They're very affluent. They typically have gone to an elite university, have an undergraduate, postgraduate degree. They live in the cities. So they are this sort of extreme group within the new elite. They are really not exposed to alternative views and perspectives. And when they're confronted with them, they are the most politically intolerant group. They're the most likely to say that person should be sacked, should be disinvited, should be discriminated against because of their political views. And in the universities, where I work, radical progressives are essentially dominant. They dominate the monoculture. There is no diversity of views essentially anymore. And so you are basically constantly coming up against this worldview, which is very focused on catastrophizing. And you do that every day on social media. We're going to have a general election within the next two years. It looks like Labour can do very well, probably win that election if you look at opinion polls now. And you talk again in your book about liberal fight back or liberal counter-revolution or whatever. And do you think that's basically going to happen? So there is a counter-revolution to to what I think we've been living through with Farage, Brexit and Boris Johnson was this attempt by millions of people, even if they viewed all of those things as imperfect vessels, even if they viewed Farage or Johnson or whatever, they said, okay, these guys don't reflect everything about me. They're trying to push back against this consensus, this liberal consensus. And I think that that rebellion which, which basically dominated the 2010s, I think is now beginning to give rise to this counter-revolution among university graduates, among millennial Zoomers from Gen Z and minority voters who are overwhelmingly moving leftwards. I'll give you one stat. Among university-educated 18 to 25-year-olds who've typically just graduated on their way to doing so, 85% are planning to vote for the Labour Party. Women have been moving sharply leftwards. University graduates and university towns have 90%, 80 to 90% of Britain's minority ethnic population is planning to vote for Labour. So the groups that are part of this new revolt that's coming, and it is coming, they are mobilising very quickly. Now the Conservatives can fend that off if they're clever. The downside for many of those groups is that they concentrate narrowly in the cities and university towns, so it's difficult for them to get this big majority. But for the Conservatives to to come around that, to navigate that, they've got to give people a message that they find appealing and resonant, and that means for Rishi Sunak, it's not only about the small boats, it's also about a whole host of issues, cost of living, the NHS, but also where are we going as a country, how sustainable is having net migration at these levels. What are you doing to defend Britain's distinctive identity and culture? These are things people genuinely care about. And they might not show up in the top 10 list of salient issues, but people genuinely care about them. They want to talk about them. They want to talk about what's happening to the country. And if the Conservatives do that, they've got a chance. They've got a chance of maybe 
maybe scraping through with a smaller majority. Remember, they only need to be three points ahead in the polls to win another majority. Labour have got to be 12 and a half points ahead in the polls to win a majority. It is still very difficult for Starmer and Labour to win that. And so Sunak needs to win back all those levers that have left his party. And he needs to appeal to small town, medium-sized town, coastal towns, non-London England. Sunak needs to basically appeal to non-London England in a very convincing, credible way. Because if he doesn't, then the revolution that began in 1979 that gathered pace through the new Labour years is about to have a whole new chapter. And I suspect it will be a much more dramatic and far-reaching one. But you also make this point that their very liberal, progressive views on cultural issues, let's say on the empire, etc., are in a minority in Britain. So how can a minority of people lead to this great counter-revolution? Because nobody wants to stand up to them. It's that simple. Because nobody wants to actually challenge their views. And if you don't get moderates in the room or you don't get conservatives in the room saying you don't represent public opinion. I'll give you one example. Renaming pregnant women pregnant persons. Right? That's a 5% issue, which means 5% of the country think that's a good idea. I'll give you another one. London's gender recognition reform bill. Right? What percentage of the country overall supported that? 20%. thought allowing 16-year-olds to legally change their gender without any medical supervision is insane. Now, who was willing to call that out? Some Conservatives did, but they did so by defending the Equalities Act. The argument was, this bill conflicts with a piece of legislation brought in by New Labour. I don't remember a single Conservative standing up and saying, I disagree with this because I think gender identity theory is not grounded in any serious science that we have. And that is what I'm talking about. So that's why a minority of 10 to 15 percent of the country are reshaping the institutions and the culture around a worldview, which a large majority of people out there don't share. But they've all. But Labour also at 50 percent of the polls. So how can those two facts be? Because there are other issues outside of what we might call the radically progressive agenda. There are issues around the collapsing National Health Service. There are issues around the cost of living. There are issues around uh, the state of the economy. There are issues around how badly the Conservatives have managed the last few years, Partygate, Liz Truss, where they've effectively allowed themselves to be completely outflanked on these issues. So it's not either or, but Conservatives have to recognise that when they say we're not wading into culture wars, they're actually really ceding a hell of a lot of territory that Conservatives in other parts of the world have been more than willing to venture into in order to try and change the political game. So if you look at how the schooling of kids on, on issues of, to do with race, sex and gender in the US has been, has been made a much more salient issue. That was primarily Republican conservative activists that were doing that, that were saying, is it right that we're teaching primary school kids the foundations of critical race theory, which don't really have any basis in, I would argue, don't really have much of a basis in empirical reality. It's certainly a political project. Um, And as a result, what happened in Virginia, what happened in New York, what happened in lots of these areas where you had very contested disputes, the Republicans were able to get back into the game. Now, is that nice politics? Is it moderate politics? No. Are these issues people care about? Yes. So are Conservatives going to talk about them? And I think that's a question hanging over the British Tories. So you obviously think there's a big opportunity for a party on the right to take advantage of all these problems the current Conservative Party has. 
is Richard Tice the leader of the Reform, Reform Party, Britain's new uh, Ron DeSantis or Glenn <laughs> Youngkin? I think, I think to be clear, I think there's a big opportunity in this country for a reshaped Conservative Party. Every party is defined by its dominant faction. Every party around the world, which faction is dominant? Now, at certain points in history, and I know you've been to the US recently, you've seen how the dominant faction can change. You can go from a a liberal conservative faction in the Mitt Romney guys to a national conservative faction in the Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump guys. In the same way, I think the only plausible way forward in Britain, given the first-past-the-post system, is some sort of change in the dominant faction within the conservative movement. Because one irony of Brexit is even though it was supposed to give us more choice and more voice over British politics, what it did as well as it removed the European Parliament elections and it removed a set of elections under proportional representation. So if you're a new party, if you're a challenger party, if you're a small party, trying to navigate this political system has become almost impossible. You know, you can do the Lib Dem thing and you can build up through local elections and I'll see you in 50 years because that's how long it will take. Or you can focus your efforts on trying to change the dominant faction within one of the big two. But what about Canada? Didn't the Canadian Conservatives manage to flip and destroy that old Tory party and bring in a new one? Same in France. And, you know, you could look to other places where the the mainstream parties were destroyed. 93 is an interesting counterfactual where you have... The Reform Party essentially replaced a sort of liberal progressive conservative movement. So I'm not saying it can't happen, but if the conditions are right, if the sense of cultural and political crisis becomes so acute, if 60% of the country is saying neither left nor right represent my values anymore, and there are issues on which they feel very strongly but both parties are essentially indistinguishable on, then as we learned during the 2010s, a gap can emerge and you can have new entrants. And just very briefly to end the interview, just on Richard Tyson, the Reform Party, obviously you're doing polling all the time. Mm. Are people aware who they are? What do they think of Tyson? Some people are aware of who Reform are. As I say, about one in ten of Boris Johnson's voters from 2019 are going over to Reform. I think in the current context, I think there's certainly an argument that rather than averaging 7-8% in the polls, they potentially could be and should be averaging a little bit higher, especially given all the disillusionment that followed the departure of Boris Johnson, the disillusionment with the small boats and so on and so forth. But as I say, Richard Tice and Reform are now operating in a very different context from what Nigel Farage was operating in during the 2000s and the early 2010s. I mean, Farage, you know, whatever your views about Farage, he was adept at using the institutional mechanisms that he had, European elections, to get visibility. Now, Richard Tice, in the same way as the Greens, they don't have that mechanism anymore. All they have are by-elections and local elections. Very, very very, very difficult to do. Not impossible, but the barriers to entry now in British politics are enormous. Thank you very much, Matthew Goodwin. Thanks. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this show and are interested in hearing more episodes like it, please follow this podcast and drop us a review. If you have any suggestions of people you would like to be interviewed, you can let us know via the Apple Podcasts app. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.